Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to Reimagining Love. I am so glad that you're here. Last week's episode and today's episode are devoted to exploring the line between what stays inside of our heads and what gets said out loud in our intimate relationships. In last week's episode, I introduced the idea that each of us exists somewhere on a filter spectrum. At one end of the filter spectrum, we've got bluntness. Some of us have little to no filter. We don't spend a ton of time thinking about what goes from our thinking bubble into our speaking bubble. We speak our minds. We are perceived by the world and we perceive ourselves as blunt and forthright. What you see is what you get. At the other end of the spectrum is people-pleasing. Others of us have a very strong filter. We are highly discerning about what goes from the thinking bubble to the speaking bubble. We couch what we say and we are perceived as tactful or people-pleasing. I talked about the factors that shape why we tend to live where we tend to live on that filter spectrum, including culture, personality, and wounds and patterns from our families of origin. Towards the end of the episode, I moved away from exploring why you have the filter that you have towards looking at the relationship dynamics. And that is where we pick up today. Okay, so intimate relationships definitely benefit from feedback, for sure. Communication, connection, conversation, dialogue, these are feedback loops. They're back and forths between what's inside of us, what's inside the space between our partner, what's inside of our partner, what's inside the space between our partner and us. Like that's relationship. That's connection. We need feedback. And when you share an observation of yours with your partner, your partner has the chance to use your observation as fuel, fuel that helps them understand you more deeply 
fuel that helps them grow as an individual and fuel that helps them love you in the way that you want and need to be loved. But when and how to share feedback is a delicate matter. It's one that takes mindfulness and skill so that feedback deepens rather than erodes connection. And although what I'm positing here is that each of us has a place that we tend to live on that filter spectrum, bluntness and people-pleasing are not like hard and fast traits. We're all at risk of saying something that lands more harshly than we meant it to. We're all at risk of keeping quiet and then potentially feeling a little bubble of resentment because bluntness and people-pleasing arise in relational contexts. That being said, couples do sometimes get into patterns that generate hurt and disconnection. If you're in a relationship where you feel like the two of you have different preferences about when and how feedback gets shared, this episode is for you. In this episode, I'm going to talk about, one, a way of thinking about feedback. Two, I'm going to offer some guidance for the blunt partner. Three, I'm going to offer some guidance for loving a blunt partner. Four, I'm going to offer some guidance for the more people-pleasing partner. And then last, I'm going to offer guidance for how to love a more people-pleasing partner. I've created a companion worksheet for these episodes. So if you're a newsletter subscriber, you're going to get the worksheet in your inbox. But if you want to grab a copy of the worksheet, you can head to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash no filter, and you can download it there. The link also is in the show notes. So I think by this point in our show, when I bring up the Gottmans, I'm going to assume that you know exactly who I'm talking about. Uh, you can tune into episode 44 of Reimagining Love, and you can learn from the incredible conversation I got to have with Drs. John and Julie Gottman. But years ago, research by the Gottmans identified that there are five types of couples. Three types of couples are happy couples, conflict-avoidant couples, volatile couples, and validating couples. Two types of couples are unhappy couples hostile couples, and hostile detached couples. The point that I want to make for our purposes today is about those happy couples. But first, just so it doesn't bother you, I'm going to tell you briefly about what characterized or captured those two types of unhappy couples. So when the Gottmans, you know, researched a ton of different couples, different relationship satisfaction scores, different communication patterns, they were able to group these couples into five different categories. The three happy ones, I'll get to those in a minute, and these two unhappy couples. So the first type of unhappy couple, they called the hostile couples. The hostile couples have a lot of what the Gottmans call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse with Liz Earnshaw in an early episode of Reimagining Love that's also linked in the show notes. So go back and, and listen to that guy too. Uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. So these hostile couples, they have low relationship satisfaction scores, and they have lots and lots of criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. 
The other type of unhappy couple are the hostile, detached couples. Those couples have a very high risk of breakup and divorce because they have all four of the horsemen of the apocalypse, lots of criticism, lots of contempt, lots of defensiveness, lots of stonewalling, plus a deep sense of disengagement and disconnection from each other. Okay, but let's shift for our purposes today into helping you understand the three types of happy couples. So three types of happy couples that the Gottmans found in their research, conflict avoidant couples, volatile couples, and validating couples. The conflict avoidant couples, when you watch them talk to each other, they just don't use a lot of persuasion. They are not particularly invested in getting each other to see it their way. They instead focus their attention on common ground. They look for the points of common ground. They also tend to avoid topics that are going to create conflict. So if we use the filter language that we've been playing with in these episodes, our conflict avoidant couples have a tight filter, a pretty tight filter. There's just not a lot of problematic conversations, difficult conversations, not a lot of like trying to influence each other or change each other's points of view. Okay. Our volatile couples are the opposite. These couples use lots of persuasion. They love to debate their observations, their opinions, their hot takes. These couples have a high value on honesty and transparency in their communication. So therefore, they just have more emotional intensity and more conflict. But it's not disrespectful. You don't see lots of insults. You don't see lots of contempt. You do see lots of humor and playfulness as they try to hash something out together. So using our filter language, these volatile couples have the loosest filter, right? They're just sort of saying what's on their mind. Everything's up for grabs, but they've got, you know, boundaries and, you know, a sense of like what's below the belt. And then the third type of happy couple are validating couples. They fall somewhere between conflict avoidant couples and volatile couples. When I used to share this data with my graduate students or even my undergraduate students, I would talk about the validating couples as most likely what happens when two therapists get married to each other. These couples focus a lot on supporting each other's point of view, empathizing with each other's feelings. So using our filter language, validating couples probably have a filter somewhere in the middle. They're somewhere between the people-pleasing end of the spectrum and the blunt end of the spectrum. So they're sharing some stuff, but what they share is really carefully curated and thoughtfully verbalized. Those are three pretty different types of relationship atmospheres, right? You can probably, in fact, call up images of happy and stable couples that you know that would probably fit into each of those categories of couples. But I wanted to share this research as a reminder that we're not talking about right and wrong ways of being. If we know that there are couples who can be happy sharing most of the stuff that's on their mind, and there can be couples who can be happy sharing relatively less of the stuff that's on their mind, then we know that what's important is the two of you having a mutual understanding and an appreciation for the kinds of agreements that the two of you are making as a couple about what and how you share with each other. Why do you and your partner communicate the way that you do? What's the value 
to each of you in your way of doing it? What's the risk in how the two of you communicate? And what do the two of you need to keep in mind given how the two of you communicate? Of course, the challenges come when there are differences. One prefers a bit more volatility and one prefers a bit more conflict avoidance. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. There are lots of different things that knock around inside of our heads that require us to make judgment calls about whether we speak our minds or keep quiet. And obviously, some of the stuff that's in our heads is complimentary stuff. I think you look beautiful. I love how you took care of our son. I'm so impressed by how you handled that work drama. I'm clear that I want us to have a pretty loose filter on the good stuff. If you are having a warm or complimentary thought about your partner, go for it. Move it from your thinking bubble to your speaking bubble ASAP. Build that cushion of positivity. Let your partner know that you think they're the bee's knees. That is good for your relationship. Might it at times make you feel a little bit vulnerable? Absolutely. Is it good and helpful to persist anyways? Absolutely. But we're talking in this episode about the stuff inside of our heads that skews negative. Broadly speaking, we're talking about stuff that fits into these kinds of categories. Opinions, you should do this, not that. Criticisms about behavior, you should have done this, not that. Criticisms of personality or character, you're so dot, dot, dot. Reactions, what you just did made me feel embarrassed, hurt. The topics could be anything, but there's definitely some topics that tend to be really tricky for couples, including things that have to do with like perceptions around attraction or weight and body, outfits, makeup, hair, clothes. Work dynamics tend to be tender. Your partner's behavior around the house, out with friends, with family. Your partner's choices, what they're eating, what they're drinking, how they're spending time, how they're talking to the kids. When we're anywhere near those territories, we really do have to be careful and thoughtful and discerning. And one of the biggest challenges that we tend to have in our relationships and in our intimate relationships in particular is that we tend to get stuck fighting for objectivity. We fight about what happened. We get stuck in the details about something rather than in the emotions or the meaning or the implications. So there's a fancy word that I want to introduce here. A fancy word is epistemology. (laughs) Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. Epistemology is how we know what we know. By what means do we make sense of the world around us? So we could talk about epistemology for a whole episode. We're not going to. For our purposes today, I just want to contrast two epistemologies, two approaches to how we know what we know. A positivist epistemology assumes that there is one absolute truth and it's knowable versus a constructivist epistemology, which says that our perception of reality is forever shaped by our location, our experience, our socialization, our identity. When we approach our intimate partnerships with a positivist epistemology, our relationship suffers. When we convince ourselves 
that we own the corner on the market of absolute truth, our relationship suffers. When we believe that the way we experienced a moment is the only possible way to have experienced that moment, our relationships suffer. By contrast, our relationships are much stronger when we can adopt a constructivist epistemology. Our relationships are much stronger when we remember that smart minds can differ on how a problem, quote unquote, should be handled because we all have differences in priorities and values. Our relationships are stronger when we can remember that multiple realities exist because we perceive the world through the lens of our experiences. And this means that the quest for objectivity is absolutely useless. Let's talk through two examples. Okay, example one, your partner has a new pair of glasses <laughs> that you don't particularly care for. Feedback that reflects a positivist epistemology sounds like this. Those glasses don't look good on you. This feedback is offered as if it is capital T truth. Those glasses do not look good on you. By contrast, feedback that reflects a constructivist epistemology sounds like this. You know, my dear, based on my personal preferences, I like the other pair of glasses better. It's couched in the awareness that when it comes to attraction, fashion, appearance, aesthetics, that beauty is highly subjective. Our perceptions of what's beautiful and attractive are based on personal preference and cultural location, not objective truth. And it's like for sure the case that in an intimate relationship, we hopefully do want to generally speaking, make fashion choices that our partner finds pleasing, not to the exclusion of our own preferences. And that's much easier to do when our partner expresses their preferences to us versus positioning it as some obvious, universal, objective fact about what looks better. Okay, second example. You and your partner wait for a long time for a table at a restaurant, and your partner speaks in a sharp tone to the waiter. Feedback to your partner that reflects a positivist epistemology sounds like this. You were rude to the waiter. Feedback that reflects a constructivist epistemology sounds like this. My take on the situation is that your tone with the waiter was quite sharp and I felt uncomfortable. It also seemed from my observation that the waiter also felt uncomfortable. Do you hear that distinction about objective truth, you were rude, versus constructivist, a constructivist take on it, a constructivist perception of it, honors, this was my perception. This is how I read the scene. It's not even worth getting into objective truth, right? All that matters and all that matters in an intimate relationship is that each of us understands where the other person is coming from. So the distinction I'm making here is not about speaking up versus biting your tongue. It's about paying attention to the premise or the belief that's underlying your feedback. When you speak as if you are reflecting something objectively true, i.e. a positivist epistemology, your partner is more likely to respond by sharing what they believe is objectively true. And then the two of you are going to get caught up in a battle for the truth, and you're going to miss out on the chance to understand each other better. By contrast, when you speak from your perception, i.e. a constructivist epistemology, you and your partner can bypass that whole battle about the truth. You can instead talk about 
what led your partner to do what they did, which might open up compassion inside of you. And you couldn't focus instead on why you experienced their behavior the way that you did, which might help your partner understand you more deeply. So the bottom line here is, for the sake of your intimate relationship, let go of the battle for the truth and instead get curious about how, as Neil Donald Walsh says, perspective creates perception. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they are not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so the chances that you and your partner live in the exact same spot on the filter spectrum at all times and on all topics is slim to none. This means that maybe at times you experience your partner's bluntness as hurtful, Maybe sometimes you keep quiet, but feel resentful. And this means that there are dynamics. There are relationship dynamics. You may become increasingly blunt in your relationship if your partner has a tendency towards shutting down. Because when they shut down, it's easier and easier for you to miss the fact that your words have actually hurt them. So you may slide on that filter spectrum towards increasing amounts of bluntness If your partner's response to your feedback tends to be that they go flat and they don't give you much back because you aren't understanding the impact of your words because you don't have that feedback loop from them, you know, being reinforced and being closed. By contrast, you may become increasingly people pleasing in your relationship if your partner conveys to you again and again and again that your partner is hurt or offended by your words, right? So you may slide your position on that filter spectrum in response to your partner's difficulty hearing feedback from you. So what I want to do now, which is something that you've heard me do in other episodes, is provide some guidance to the partner who tends towards bluntness, and then provide some guidance for the partner who tends towards people-pleasing. Reminder here that I created a companion worksheet for these episodes. So if you're a newsletter subscriber, you will get the worksheet in your inbox. But if you want to grab a copy of the worksheet, you can head to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash no filter, and you can download the worksheet there. The link is also in the show notes. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you first, person who has less of a filter, the blunt one. I'm talking to you. So sharing an observation, an opinion, a piece of feedback requires skill. Sharing feedback is not a free-for-all. You do have a responsibility to package what you say in a way that helps your partner hear you. This is not coddling. This is kindness 
and this is effectiveness. So here are some suggestions that I would love for you to keep in mind so that your tendency towards bluntness ends up feeling to your partner like an asset more than a liability. Okay, guidance point number one, put yourself in your partner's shoes. Think inside of your head. If I was my partner, how would this feedback sound to me? Be clear, this is not about you imagining how you would feel if you heard your words. It's about you imagining how your partner will feel hearing your words, given what you know and you love and you cherish about your partner as a person. You get that? So when you put yourself in your partner's shoes, you have to put yourself in your partner's shoes as your partner, not as you. That's a really important empathy practice. Okay, number two, think about what will help your partner receive your opinion or your observation in the best possible way. Think about the time and the place to bring it up. Think about the tone of your voice. This is not about what you say, but it's about how you say it. So be mindful that the context matters. Set your partner up to hear you well by paying attention to the timing and the place and the tone that you use. Okay, three, think about whether you are choosing this feedback that you're sharing or whether you are reacting to something. How regulated versus dysregulated you are matters. How calm versus upset you are matters. Your own level of regulation shapes how your partner hears and receives what you're trying to say. If your partner feels like you are flying off the handle, their reflex is going to be to armor up and protect themselves. Versus if your partner feels like you have mindfully chosen to make this observation or to share this feedback from a place of choice rather than a place of reaction. Okay, four, I would love for you to keep an eye out for some, what I'm going to call red alert phrases. As a couples therapist, I know that I can sit back a little bit when couples are speaking to each other in a way that demonstrates relational self-awareness, i.e. they're talking about things as their perceptions rather than absolute truths. When they are giving each other the benefit of the doubt, things like that, I can kind of hang back and observe and, you know, refine as needed. And I know that I need to step in more as partners get more activated, right? They need more structure, more guidance, more high touch from me. And the way that I do that is in addition to tracking how people's bodies are positioned, how their bodies look in addition to looking at their facial expressions, in addition to tracking what's going on inside of me, I track the couple's language. And there are a few phrases in particular that indicate that we are tipping from relationally helpful truth-telling that's in the service of connection and mutuality into more brutal honesty, more no-holds-barred. And that kind of sharing erodes emotional safety. So I'm going to give you three phrases and you see if these are any that, you know, you find yourself feeling guilty of at times. One is, I'm just going to be really honest here. (laughs) That tends to be like a red alert, red alert. The second one is, you know, I might regret saying this, but dot, dot, dot. That's another one that indicates like, wait, 
hit the brakes, slow down. If you might regret saying this, then hold a beat before you say it. The third one is, this might be hard for you to hear, but dot, dot, dot. Okay, that's another one where it's like, okay, if it's going to be hard for your partner to hear, let's slow down and pause and refine what it is you're about to say. So any of those phrases is a good indicator that it's time to pause. The fifth piece of guidance I want to offer you is to check in with yourself about your motivation. And you can do that by asking yourself the question, why? Why am I wanting to share this observation, this critique, this opinion right now? Get really honest with yourself. Do you truly, down to your bones, believe that what you want to share with your partner is in support of your partner's highest good? Is what you want to share truly being shared in support of your partner's growth? Is what you're about to say being fueled by perhaps a part of you that is invested in activating insecurity inside of your partner? Yikes. This is something we talked about in the jealousy solo episode from a number of months back. If so, why? What's going on inside of you that perhaps you are a little bit invested in making your partner feel a little bit insecure right now? What's going on inside of you that you might be wanting or needing to have a leg up in the relationship in this moment? This is not about, you know, you being a bad person or something being wrong with you. It's about you getting really clear and honest that sometimes our motivations are messy as humans. And sometimes there is a part of us that wants our partner to feel bad in some kind of a way. And that's a good cue to hold on, to pause, to work with the feelings that we're having and make a different kind of a choice. Going along with that, guidance number six is as a general rule of thumb, the greater the urgency to speak, the greater the need to stay quiet. If it feels very much to you, like you have to say this right now, that's a good time to pause, take a breath, change scenes, go get some fresh air, take a shower, listen to some music, put an ice cube in your hands, like shift your body, shift your contacts, like change it up. Pause, take a breath, check in with yourself. Urgency is suspicious. Urgency might be letting you know that what you want to say is coming from a desire to control the situation, a desire to prove something to your partner, rather than a desire to support your partner, rather than a desire to understand and be understood by your partner. When you are triggered, less is more. Put the phone down. Do not send that text. Close your mouth. Do not say what you're about to say. Step away. Pause. Regulate before you re-engage. Seven, remember that discernment is not dishonesty. Discernment is not dishonesty. We have 0% control over the thoughts that pop into our minds, but we have 100% control over what comes out of our mouths. And listen, our minds can be some pretty darn tangly territory at times, right? Like for the sake of our mental health, we need to be really careful to not believe everything that we think. And for the sake of our relational health, we need to not say everything that we think. When some crazy ass thought runs through your head and you don't tell your partner, you're not necessarily being withholding. 
you are not necessarily lying. You are perhaps being merciful and mature. It's a big difference between discernment and dishonesty. I love this uh, idea that our relationships are improved by the two or three things that we don't say every day. Okay, the last one is, I want you also to practice compassion with yourself. If you are feeling some amount of shame or some amount of regret as you listen to this episode because of some of the blunt things that have come out of your mouth, I want to remind you to be sweet to you. I want to remind you that these tendencies are neither all good nor all bad. And we talked last week, in fact, about some of the very painful family of origin dynamics that might have led you to be more of a shoot from the hip kind of a person. So have compassion for the way that your bluntness may very well have been a coping strategy that you very much needed when you were young that you just don't need in the same way anymore. And or your bluntness may have developed in a prior, less than healthy, intimate relationship that you were in. Perhaps in a prior relationship, you had to be blunt in order to be heard by your ex. Perhaps you were hurt by your ex And so now you do tend to lash out at your current partner because you're afraid of them lashing out at you. Hold compassion for yourself and remind yourself that you can work today, hopefully with this partner, to create a more emotionally safe relationship so that you don't need to get really blunt in order to be heard. And you don't need to be blunt, you know, in order to prevent getting hurt. You get to, as you build a healthier and more secure and steady relationship, you get to soften. You get to slow down. You get to let your guard down. But that can take some time. It can take some time for your body and your mind and your heart and your soul to shift from an old way of being to a newer way of being. But that's about earning security. Like You get to do that as you heal within yourself and as you heal within your partnership, you get to step ever so gently into new and different ways of being. Okay, moving on, I want to offer some guidance to the partner of the blunt one. So you are somebody who has a partner who tends to be blunt. This means that you tend to be in the wake of their feedback. And hopefully, they're delivering their feedback lovingly. Hopefully, they're delivering their feedback in the service of connection. But What we're going to talk about here is I suspect sometimes your feelings are hurt by your blunt partner, and I suspect that sometimes you need to let your partner know, ouch, that hurt my feelings. It is important that you let your partner know that your feelings have been hurt. In fact, the Gottmans, the very same Gottmans, have found that happy couples have what's called a low negativity threshold. Happy couples generally address the pebble in their shoe before it becomes a chronic rub, before it can create, you know, a wound or an injury. So they address things as they come up. They don't wait until there's a whole stockpile of hurts and, you know, resentments. When your partner's feedback has hurt your feelings, it's really, really, really reasonable that you want and need to talk about it together. So here are some reminders. Address your concerns with your partner 
but see if you can be clear and explicit about conveying that you understand the difference between your partner's actions and your partner's character. So saying something like, I know, my dear, that you value me and that you value this relationship, which is exactly why I want to raise this concern with you. Also, when your partner's words have hurt you, it can help to be explicit that you understand that there's a difference between your partner's intent and the impact. An example of this is, my dear, when you said that I was being inconsiderate the other night, I know that you did not intend to hurt me. However, the impact is I felt really hurt because I pride myself on taking other people's needs into account and because your view of me matters. So, okay, when you're feeling hurt by something your partner has said, put the hurtful words between the two of you. Rather than getting into that positivist debate we were talking about before, about whether your partner's too gruff or you're too sensitive, I want the two of you to orient yourselves shoulder to shoulder, and I want you to look together at what happened. Here are some questions that you can use to guide that conversation. The first question is, what was going on inside of your partner that perhaps led them to have less of a filter? What was going on inside of your partner that led them to be so blunt? Was your partner feeling especially self-critical, like critical of themselves? It's hard to offer more kindness to other people than we're offering to ourselves. So perhaps your partner was blunt with you because they were being critical of themselves. Was your partner feeling stressed about something else and they sort of took it out on you? We know that stress compromises our bandwidth and stress creates the conditions for us to cut corners in our communication. So things come out more sharply, more bluntly, more harshly when we're stressed. Not an excuse, but a context. Was your partner perhaps feeling unseen or unappreciated by you? If so, maybe they were consciously or unconsciously turning up the volume to convey their hurt indirectly. Again, absolutely not justifying this behavior. It is not an excuse, but I'm highlighting this as a potential line of inquiry. If this idea resonates with your partner, it's their internal work to extend compassion for themselves, remembering that they are more than their mean behavior, and then to use that compassion that they have for themselves to fuel an acknowledgement and an apology with you. The other you know, line of inquiry, so we're talking here, it's the two of you looking together at what happened. The other line of inquiry here is for you to check in. What was going on inside of you that led you to feel hurt by your partner's words? The check-in here is, to what degree is your partner's comment something that would hurt your feelings 10 times out of 10 times? Like, would this, would this thing that your partner said, would it always hurt your feelings? The answer may very well be, absolutely, 10 times out of 10. This comment would hurt my feelings. Fine, not okay. The conversation then needs to be why comments like that cannot coexist with emotional safety. It's just a hard pass. Not possible. Like this is not a reflection of what was going on inside of you. It's a reflection of a comment like that just is never going to be okay with you. If you can imagine a scenario where 
you could let something like what your partner said roll off your shoulders, then check in about what's different for you right now. Why did that comment from your partner at that moment in that context, like why did it land especially harshly for you? Are you perhaps feeling self-critical such that their negatively tinged words piled onto your already negative self-talk? Are you perhaps feeling a bit more insecure than usual in your relationship for some reason? And perhaps that heightened your sensitivity. What I'm getting at here is that when one or both of you can own your piece of what happened, you open the door to a radically different conversation. A conversation that is founded in relational self-awareness holds the potential to deepen connection and understanding. It also, by the way, makes it infinitely easier than to apologize, forgive, and move on because we're not fighting for our sense of worth. We're not fighting about reality. We're just saying, oh, I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm sorry I hurt you. And the other one is saying, it's okay. I know that you're a good person. I know that you're stressed. I know that I'm sensitive. It's okay. Let's move on. Like whatever, you know, it's much easier to do that kind of repair when people have peeled back the layers to look at the unique stuff that they brought into the interaction. So here's an example of this kind of self-reflection in action. The November solo episode of Reimagining Love had just come out. It was the episode about couples and work stress. So Todd Solomon and I were on a walk and I asked him, like I do every single week, I asked him for feedback about the episode. And he said, this is not an exact transcript, but it's... It's approximate. <laughs> Here's what he said to me. He said, um, to be honest, this week's episode was hands down my least favorite episode ever. It was a total slog. I mean, to be clear, for couples who are struggling with work stress, like I can't imagine a better thing out there, but I just kept checking my phone to see how much time I had left. <laughs> this is what Todd said to me. Okay. Whew. Okay. So that's what he says. And listen, I am somebody who identifies as pretty darn sensitive. I am definitely, definitely not known for my thick skin. But he offered this feedback and my reaction was total neutrality and total curiosity. I was like, really? That's so interesting. And I asked him some follow-up questions and I kind of teased apart his reaction and his feedback and why it might be that way. But I'll tell you what, even as I was asking him the follow-up questions, and even as we were talking more specifically about his reactions to that episode, I could feel inside of my brain this like parallel awareness where I could totally see a world in which him saying that same thing would have hurt my feelings and it would have led me to feel crappy about myself and crappy about him. This same thing could have gone differently in a different context. There's an objective piece. So I think what helped me be curious was that I reminded myself, very likely out loud, that Todd Solomon is probably not a great representation of the Reimagining Love target audience. You know, Todd listens to episodes to be <laughs> a dutiful, sweet husband, you know, but he listens to be entertained. So he likes episodes where there's conversation, there's back and forth. I know this. So it's, it's, it's not a surprise to me that kind of long and juicy solo episode is not going to be, you know, his sweet spot. 
Okay, so I know that. And so that helped me take it less personally. I think there also was a me piece. On that day, I was not feeling particularly self-critical. So I could stay curious about his words rather than feeling like his words get piled on top of what was already a boisterous, negative chorus inside of my own head. So my own, I, I was primed to feel curious and neutral because I was feeling pretty darn gentle with myself. And then the us piece, that conversation between the two of us on that walk happened it sat on top of a cushion of positivity between the two of us going into the conversation. So his words landed softly and gently because we were feeling pretty good about our connection with each other. Talking about the Gottmans again, they've found that in order to feel happy and satisfied in our relationships, we need a 20 to 1 ratio of positive to negative interactions. 20 to 1. That's how much the negative stuff sticks. When we have a 20 to 1 positive to negative ratio of interactions in our relationship, the relationship can metabolize and handle a criticism, right? So Todd gave some negative feedback that would probably count as a negative interaction. But because we had built up enough of a cushion of positive interactions, the, the space between us could metabolize the negative one, the critical feedback. And then interestingly, the fact that I was able to stay curious with him about his reactions to the episode then led him to dig a little bit deeper and, you know, kind of go into this whole thing about maybe, maybe he didn't like the episode about work stress, at least in part, because maybe there was a little bit of resistance on his end to the idea that work stress, either his work stress or my work stress has perhaps hurt our relationship at times. So that was kind of the cool side effect, right? Was by me not having my feelings hurt or taking his negative review of the episode too personally, we were able to stay in that curious back and forth that led him to peel back some layers and think a little bit more deeply about what was it? You know, is there something about work stress, how Todd and I handle work stress that maybe also led him to be a little bit resistant <laughs> to that topic in general? So that's an example of just how nuanced and delicate and contextualized all of this is. Okay, moving along. So guidance for the people pleaser. If you are the people pleaser, if you identify as a people pleaser in your relationship, here are some reminders and some guidance for you. Number one, first, I want you to feel proud of what your people pleasing makes possible in your relationships. You know, we're living in a time when I think there's a lot of people-pleasing bashing going on. So a reminder that rather than viewing this tendency of yours as a deficit or a problem or a symptom, hold on to the both and of it. Your people-pleasing helps people feel seen by you and safe with you, and it puts you at risk of being taken advantage of or of silencing yourself. So there are ways in which your people-pleasing is an asset in your intimate relationship. And it's important for you to remember that so that you don't kind of constantly feel like you're in the one down position somehow. Two, it is important for you to keep an eye out for symptoms of resentment, because as I said before, one of the symptoms of being focused on the other, being really discerning about what you say out loud, one of the symptoms or one of the risks there 
is the buildup of resentment. So resentment might feel like irritability. It might feel like numbness or flatness. And you may feel like you're hiding it pretty well, but resentment is going to take a toll on your relationship. So if you are feeling resentful, that is definitely a cue for you to begin to share a little bit more and a little bit more about what's going on in your thinking bubble and to begin to say out loud more of what you need and want from your partner and from the relationship. Okay, three, tee your partner up. If you are stretching yourself by sharing some feedback with them, let them know, right? Get them ready. <laughs> like feedback incoming. It's like, hey, my dear, it is not easy for me to share my observations or to share my needs or to share my feedback. So please be patient while I get this out. Like tee your partner up, prime your partner. I want your partner to welcome your feedback because then you'll be increasingly able to speak up with your partner when you need to and when you want to. So you can do that by teeing your partner up, like incoming feedback. Four, check in with your motivation as well. I I did this for the blunt partner, but for the people-pleasing partner also, like check in about your motivation. How clear do you feel that you're sharing something in the service of relational growth versus you're sharing something in order to prove something or in order to paint yourself as a victim? How clear do you feel that you are sharing this feedback in order to feel close to your partner? If your answer to these questions is that you feel pretty darn clear that your motivations are relational ones, then go for it. Challenge yourself to speak up, even if it's a little bit muddy, even if your voice is a little bit shaky, even if your palms are a little bit sweaty, like stretch yourself. And of course, number five, practice self-compassion. Reminder that your people-pleasing may very well reflect an old coping strategy. So be sweet to that coping strategy, even if and as your work is to shift a bit out of that pattern so that you have more voice and more authenticity. But be compassionate with yourself. Rather than beating yourself up or saying that your people-pleasing tendencies are a symptom or a deficit, or a mark on your character. No, just this is the way that you've been, and you are practicing stepping into some new ways of being. Okay, and then finally, reminders for those who love a people-pleaser. So if you are partnered with somebody who's more on the people-pleasing side of the spectrum, here's what I want you to keep in mind. First, go slowly with decision-making. Your partner has a tendency to keep their opinions and their preferences inside of their thinking bubble. So go slowly make sure that you leave space for them to come forward with their ideas, their preferences, their suggestions. Number two, if your partner is a people pleaser, make sure that you ask questions. You might assume that if your partner has an opinion or if your partner has a preference, they will just verbalize it. Because that's what you do. If you have something inside of your head, if you have a preference, you say it out loud. But your partner may not. In fact, your partner may need your encouragement. They might need you to ask questions, to draw them out. Your partner may need you to ask questions so that so that they pause, turn their attention inward, and even check in with themselves about what they want and need. So a helpful reminder for those who love a people pleaser is to ask questions, ask them questions. Okay, three, if you love a people pleaser, 
make sure that you listen for times when they do express their preferences or their opinions. So like tune your listening ear to listen for them speaking up about what they want and need. You might not be accustomed to hearing their wants and needs very often because they might not say their wants and needs very often. So train your ears to listen and pay attention when you do hear them express a preference or an opinion. Number four, thank them for sharing their feedback with you. For a people-pleasing partner to take the risk to share feedback can feel a little scary. So affirm in whatever way feels natural and authentic for you, affirm that you can handle, you can handle the truth. You can handle their feedback and that their feedback is valuable. Going along with that, number five, be careful about how you deal with disappointment. If you're somebody who has a tendency to pout or sulk when you don't get your way, you are likely subtly reinforcing your partner's tendency towards people-pleasing. So when you feel disappointed, take a breath. Tend to whatever part of you is feeling rejected. Remind yourself that this moment is in fact a moment. It doesn't capture the sum total of who the two of you are as a couple. Because the more you sulk, the more your partner is going to people please and keep quiet and build resentment. Da, 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 da. So be careful with how you deal with moments of disappointment. And then six is be careful of how you give feedback. So people pleasers are vulnerable to being taken advantage of in other relationships. So you might notice your partner, your people pleasing partner, doing a lot of emotional work in their friendships or saying yes to additional demands from their boss. And you may find yourself wanting to point that out to them because you feel protective of their time, of their energy, of their talent. But be thoughtful about how you bring it up. A few reminders to you, go meta, That meaning you've heard me talk about that before. Going meta is asking, are you available for feedback, right? So ask your people-pleasing partner, are you available for some feedback? Second, remember to practice constructivist epistemology. So rather than saying your boss is taking advantage of you, say something like, it seems to me that your boss is not being particularly respectful of your time. From where I stand, what it looks like to me is that your boss is running you know, right over your boundaries. Very different than your boss is taking advantage of you. Couch it, soften it, put it through a constructivist epistemology. Last one is to just lead with curiosity. So something like, I wonder how you're feeling in that friendship right now, right? Invite them to check in with themselves about it rather than you coming in and saying your friend is, you know, whatever, bullying you, taking advantage of you. Okay, we did it. So Final reminder that we have created a companion worksheet for these episodes. If you're a newsletter subscriber, you'll get the episode worksheet in your inbox. But if you want to grab a copy, you can head to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash no filter and download it there. And the link is also in the show notes. So I hope that you found today's episode really helpful. And I hope you found last week's episode really helpful. I hope that these episodes have given you some things to think about and some new ideas for how you know when and how to share feedback and observations with your partner. Until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. 
Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.